This is a YCF special. Welcome to Your Church Friends Podcast. I am Chris. Hey, I hope all of you had a wonderful Christmas out there. I hope you spent it with your family, friends, and loved ones. I hope you had a great opportunity to reflect on the birth of our Savior and just really embrace what that whole day means and and how it's central or key to the gospel message that we go out and share with the world. So, uh, hey, you may have just noticed there was no mrzach. In the beginning of the intro, that's because my buddy Murdoch is on a long overdue, well-needed vacation. And uh, so it's just me here in the in the studio, and I'm going to record just a couple of episodes uh, this week's and next week's uh, for you guys. And I'm going to take a look at the book of Psalms because I just love the book of Psalms. Uh, I'm not going to look at all 150 chapters. I'm just going to pull two of my favorite ones because I feel like there's so much we can relate in the book of Psalms. I feel like uh, the Psalms is just, it's so relatable for all of us. There's a gauntlet of what we experience. I read this and I thought it goes along with what I just said about relating that Martin Luther said that the book of Psalms is just a little Bible. It's a summary of the Old Testament. And you see it throughout there. You, you hear uh, there's Psalms about creation. There's Psalms about the Exodus. There's Psalms about, uh, from David about what he's going through in his life. But we relate to it because uh, through it all, there's the ups, there's the lows, there's the, there's the highs, and, and there's, there's the tops. One minute, everything in life is great. And the next, there's the lamenting of the lows of life. And this is the book of Psalms for us to read, and it's there for us. And, and the word Psalms means praise songs or songs of praise. And uh, so you could think of them that way. Uh, and I thought this was interesting that the Psalms is the most quoted book of the Old Testament in the New Testament. It's also the thing most quoted by Jesus. Uh, so we have these for us to reflect on, to look upon, and to see uh, where we are in life. Uh, Psalms are 150 chapters of songs and prayers, and they're designed to rewash our brain, to rewash our imagination off the empires of the world, uh, the worship of money, sex, fame, and relationships that are constantly fighting for our attention. Uh, that's what the Psalms do. They get our minds off of the things of this earth, and they put them back on God. Uh, they get them off of the concept of worship of money, that money is the most important thing. And they put it back on God, that sex is the most important thing. And it puts it back on God, on fame. And it's just putting it back on God. Anything that fights for your attention, when you read the book of Psalms, it puts our mind back on God. I mean, they are littered with great is your faithfulness. God, you are this. God is that. Uh, you knew me before uh, I was even created. Uh, so they are these books uh, or these these little sections in this book of encouragement. And throughout its many pages, Psalms encourages us to praise God for who he is and what he has done. It shows God's greatness. It affirms his faithfulness to us in times of trouble. And it reminds us of the absolute of his word. It gives us a glimpse after glimpse of the heart of our God. And in them, you see individuals repent, and you see lives changed when they encounter him. Uh, it paints a clear picture of a loving God who guides his people. And so in all of this, when we read them, our response to all of that, our emotions are filled with praise and worship to God. 
And it's like a song, right? When you listen to a song, you hear it and you're like, oh man, uh, that song reminds me of this or that song reminds me of that moment of, in life or that song uh, brings you to, to this emotion or that emotion. You know, we can listen to a song and it, it could get us amped and pumped up to want to, to do something for the day. Like uh, when I go running, I got to listen to music that's going to amp me up. I put on uh, some music that's going to get my blood going and my adrenaline rushing. You know, I can't be listening to no soft rock from the 90s because that's not going to help me uh, while I'm trying to run when my body doesn't want to. Uh, so songs do that. They change our emotions. They change how, our, how we feel. And so do the Psalms uh, do the same thing. Uh, I think of one of the songs that just sticks out to me is Coldplay's Viva La Vida. Because uh, right after me and Justine were announced husband and wife for the first time and we walked down that aisle, that was the song that we chose to play. Uh, so every time I hear that song, it takes me back to that moment. Uh, it's also been said that the book is a mirror into the soul. Uh, John Calvin writes this, uh, What riches has been contained in this treasure? I have been accustomed to call this book, I think not inappropriately, an autonomy of the soul, for there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not represented as in a mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit has, be, has drawn to life all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are agitated by. The other parts of Scripture contain uh, the commandments uh, which God en enjoined His servants to announce to us. But here the prophets themselves, seeing they are exhibited to us, speaking to God and laying open all their inmost thoughts and affections, call or rather draw each of us to the examination of himself in particular, in order that none of the infirmities with, to which we are subject and the many vices which we abound may remain concealed. It is certainly a rare and singular advantage when all lurking places are discovered and the heart is brought into light, purged from the most baneful infection, hypocrisy. And, and I just really love that quote because it gets into what these psalms are. Uh, the, the psalmists expose who they are, the, the rawness of their sins, their struggles, and, and even their questioning of where God is in difficult times. And they're there for us to read. So that when we read them, we can relate and say, I've been there. I understand that. I know what's going on here. And so that takes us into our Psalms for this week is Psalms 3. Because Psalms 3 is one of those Psalms that was written during a difficult time in the life of David. So let me get into it. I'm going to read it from the net translation. It reads, a Psalm of David, written when he fled from his son Absalom. Lord, how numerous are my enemies. Many attack me. Many say about me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield that protects me. You are my glory and the one who restores me. To the Lord I cried out, and he answered me from his holy hill. I rested and slept. I awoke, for the Lord protects me. I am not afraid of the multitude of people who attack me from all directions. Rise up, O Lord. Deliver me, my God. Yes, you will strike all my enemies on the jaw. You will break the teeth of the wicked. The Lord delivers, you show favor to your people. So out of the first 41 Psalms, 37 of them are ascribed to David, meaning he wrote them or that these are from his life. And Psalms 3 is one of them. Uh, Psalms 3 can be seen as a prayer for help. Uh, verse 1 and 2, that's the, the complaint or the issue that is being faced. Uh, verses 3 through 6 is the confession of trust. 
Verse 7 is the petition, and verse 8 is the closing benediction. And in the title, it gives us a glimpse of where David is in his life. Uh, When this psalm was composed, he was running for his life from his own son, Absalom. And that story can be found in 2 Samuel uh, 13 through 18. So go out and read those. Uh, But let me give you a quick glance of it. So chapter 13 starts off with Amnon, uh, David's firstborn son. And I heard a preacher once say that that Amnon, uh, there should have been books in the Bible about Amnon, that, that Amnon being the next king in line, like it was Saul and then David, and then David is the Davidic line, and that the next king after him, uh, you know, it should have been Amnon, and that Amnon uh, should have had all this prestige and everything about him. But Amnon had an issue uh, deep in his heart uh, that he wanted something that he shouldn't have had, and that was his half-sister, uh, Tamar. And because of the lust of his flesh, uh, Amnon then rapes Tamar. And after he does it, he's then kind of disgusted with himself and with her, and he says, like, hey, just get out of here. I want nothing to do with you now. And, and Tamar's like, no, don't do this. This is worse than what you just did. Uh, but he's like, no, I, I don't want to deal with you. So she then leaves to her brother Absalom, and, and when Absalom hears about this, he becomes very angry. And she lives with him the rest of her life. Two years go by, and there's nothing. There's no action. There's no course of disciplinary. There's no other mention of what Amnon did to Tamar. And then Absalom says, hey, you know what? I'm going to throw a party. I'm going to invite Amnon over. And he does. And at this party, he ends up killing him, a straight-up mafia style, you know, like a setup. And because of this, Absalom has to bounce. He has to hide for three years. Uh, after the three years, you know, David wants his son back. So he, you know, makes a way for Absalom to come back. Uh, but for two years after Absalom returns, uh, David doesn't see him at all. They don't meet, they don't talk. And then finally, after those two years are over, they meet, they embrace. And you think that this is the end of the story. But nope, this is where uh, it kind of gets a little, I mean, worse than what it's already, what's already happening for David. So after some time, the Bible says Absalom will go to the city gate. And he would hear the complaints of the people. He would tell them, if the king was here, uh, or if I was judge of the land, uh, I would help you. But, you know, since, you know, the king isn't here and I'm not judge of the land, what can I do? And then when people bowed down to them, he would pick them up and kiss them. You know, he was, he was doing this and it said for four years he did it and he stole the hearts of the people. And then he began his plan. He went to Hebron under the guise of worshiping. And when he got there, He had about 200 men shout out, Absalom is king in Hebron. And when David hears this, David understands what just happened. His his son's coming for his throne. His son is coming for his kingdom. And David feels like there's nothing he could do to stop it. So he gathers all he can and he leaves, knowing that his son is going to be coming for him. Absalom is given the advice, hey, take your, your father's concubines to the roof of the palace in front of everybody so everyone can see and sleep with them there. And he does it. Jerry Springer stuff here going on. And this is the Bible. And what I love about the Bible, and we've talked about it before on the podcast, is it doesn't shy away from these things. It doesn't take them out to make the story better or to make the story seem less harsh. It keeps in all the dirt and grittiness of the individuals in it. And as David's headed out, he's greeted by Shemei, a Benjamite. And Shemei starts cursing him. I'm actually going to read it. It's in 2 Samuel 16. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, uh, though all the troops and special guards were with David on right and left. As he cursed, Shammai said, Get out! Get out, you murderer, you scoundrel! The Lord has repaid you for the blood you shed on the house of Saul. 
in whose palace you have reigned. The Lord has given your kingdom into the hands of your son Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a murderer. Then Abishai, son of Zerai, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut his head off. But the king said, What does this have to do with you, son of Zerai? If he is cursing me because the Lord said, Curse David, who can ask, Why do you do this? David then said to Abishai and all of his officials, My son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more than this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse me, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore me to the covenant blessing instead of the curse today. And this is where we are in David's life. And David picks up his pen and he starts writing Psalms 3. And he starts with, O Lord. And I think this is important for us to recognize where David starts in the midst of this calamity, in the midst of this uh, tragedy that he's got going on in his life, that uh, his own son is now trying to kill him and take the kingdom away from him. He starts with the Lord. In the midst of this tough time, this horrible experience, this situation David is going through, he starts with God. He goes directly to God. See, a lot of us, we like to complain to our friends or, or we go online and we become a keyboard warrior and we complain there and we say, we don't like this or I don't like that. And, and uh, you know, we're just complaining about life. And what that does is that we're taking our problems vertical. And what David is showing us here is not to take our problems to the vertical, but the horizontal, to take them to God. Yeah, see, it's okay to complain to God. It's okay to tell him how angry you are, how much you're in pain, uh, how sad you are, how depressed you are, uh, how stuck you feel, how alone or abandoned you feel. Uh, All of that is okay. God does not shy away from hearing us expose our hearts to him or to tell him how we really feel. He's not bothered by it. The issue is when we go vertical with our problems to the people who can't do anything about them. Because at this point, we're complaining about God and not to God. I think of the children of Israel when it says they were grumbling about having no food or no water or no meat, and they were just grumbling amongst themselves. It was Moses who went to God on behalf of the people, but the people didn't go to God. They were just complaining, and it creates this this environment and this nature of God isn't doing enough for me when we're just complaining about what's happening in our life. And, and, And to clarify, I'm not saying we can't share with someone about what we're going through. We totally can, as long as it's followed up with, will you pray with me about this situation? Because now there are two people taking the situation to God. And it's okay to tell God, this is unfair, and I don't like this. God is okay with all of that. But we just got to take it to Him. Uh, Look at it this way. The Lord is personal, and and it's directed to God. Uh, So I read this in a commentary, and it says this, By means of address, contact is established, which makes speaking to God possible. If a person calls upon God by his name or vice versa, something happens at that moment. And we need to understand that, that the moment we call to God, something happens. We are now taking this issue that we thought was ours or that we thought was uh, too big for us to handle. And we're laying it at our Creator's feet and saying, you take this. I I know this is too big for me, but it's not too big for you. You can take care of everything. So what David is doing is he involves God in the drama and the pain of his suffering. And that's what he's doing here. All right, the rest of verse 1 and all of 2, or what I like to call the situation. 
And David says, how numerous are my enemies. Uh, this, was the, this was real for David. He had been driven out of the palace and they were surrounding him. He was surrounded. And the taunting was real. You know, when it goes into my foes, uh, they say against me, God won't deliver me. Uh, the taunting was real. We remember Shimei, right? He was like, you deserve this, David, because of what you did to Saul. Blood is on your hands. This is what you get. God won't deliver you because this is your punishment, man. And this is the central theological issue of Psalm chapter 3. Will God help David? See, the enemy's claim was no. And it, we have to remember that we have an enemy out there whose favorite attack against our God is God won't or God can't deliver you. Our enemy likes to surround us with accusations and lies. I mean, he's called the, the accuser of the brethren, the father of lies. Like, this is his trick. This is his play. This is what he does. And our enemy will lie to us and tell us we deserve what's going on because of our past mistakes or that God is just punishing us. So just accept it. And during the crap of life, the enemy will try to get us to doubt if God can even help us, if he really has the power to. And I find it interesting that the enemy attacks the very source of our hope, God. And that's why it's important to keep our eyes on God when we're going through it all. Hudson Taylor said this, and I love it. He says, all of our difficulties are only platforms for the manifestation of his grace, power, and love. They're just the platforms. What you're going through, it's just a platform to manifest God's grace in your life. For him to show you his power. But most importantly, for him to show you his love. And this is why we need to keep our eyes on him when we're going through it. Because if our eyes are on the enemies or the situation or the circumstance, then we don't see this. We don't see his grace. We don't see his power. And we don't see his love. Verse 3 starts with a powerful response to the enemies and doubts. But you. But God. I, I love when I read that in the Bible. And it's littered throughout the passages. Uh, because this is the counter for the messiness of life. This is the counter for everything that we're going through. But God. David found comfort in God's character. So in the midst of all of it, again, oh Lord, here's what's going on. Here's my circumstance. Here's my situation. But you, God. But you, God, I'm going to look at who you are in the middle of it because that's what's going to sustain me. And the metaphor David uses is a shield. It's a common one implying protection, and it's littered throughout the Psalms. It's Psalm 7, verse 10, 18, verse 22, and 30, uh, 28, 7, 33, 20, 59, 11, 84, 11, 115, 9 through 11, 119, verse 114, 142, verse 2. And even in Genesis, when God makes a covenant with Abraham, he tells him this, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. In Deuteronomy, when Moses is blessing the tribes, it says, Blessed are you, Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. He is your shield and a helper and your glorious sword. Your enemies will, will cower before you and you will tread on their heights. And what's significant here is that unlike a normal shield that only protects in one direction, God is a shield that's all around. This being the perfect counterbalance to the many enemies overwhelming on all sides. David sees God as just being able to be around him and comfort and protect him. And for me, I think of because I have the chickens, 
a mother hen, right? What does she do when there's danger? She brings her hands and protects them and puts her wing over them and surrounds them with her essence to protect them from the damage or from the danger that's coming. And that's what God does, right? God protects us with his essence, with his very being, with who he is. He covers us and he drapes that all over us in the midst of our terrible circumstances, in the midst of the the diagnosis, in the midst of the loss, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of our depression, in the midst of our anxiety. He covers us with who he is and protects us from the enemy's accusations and lies and says, no, focus in on me. Be engulfed and surrounded with me. And because David sees God this way, he knows God is going to be the one who restores him. He knows that it's God that's going to bring the restoration uh, to him in his life. C.S. Lewis said, uh, we trust not because a God exists, but because this God exists. Oswald Chambers said, it is not our trust that keeps us, but the God in whom we trust who keeps us. All right, let's jump into verse 4. To the Lord I cry aloud. And he answered me from his holy hill. Where the enemies had used their voices to mock David's trust in God, David responds not with his own mocking back, but with a cry to the very one who the enemies had denied would help him. The Shimei example all over again. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore me to the covenant blessing instead of the curse today. So instead of David firing back, instead of David popping off, back at Shimei or even letting uh, one of his guards cut off his head, you know, when the guard was like, this dead dog, and you see that, right? Shimei assaults, Abishai comes back and is like, hey, you're a dead dog, right? And you see the insulting back, and what David does, is says, no, 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 we don't need to do that. We're going to leave this in God's hands. Maybe God will see my misery, and maybe because of that, he'll restore me to where I was, but I'm not going to fire back. I'm not going to fight the battle in the physical. The Bible is very clear that our battle is not with each other. It's in the spiritual realm. And David doesn't take this battle into the physical, although the physical is being attacked. He knows that this is spiritual, and he takes the battle spiritual. He, he takes it to God. And this allows him to go into verse 5. Verse 5, I rested and slept. I awoke for the Lord has protected me. Laying down and sleeping in the presence of threatening adversaries is a remarkable demonstration of calm and trust. I also see this like this is the morning after and David has already slept and God sustained him through the night. And so because he has slept and rested and he knows God has sustained him, his confidence is now up in who God is. And this makes me think that when we're going through it, uh, the long night of difficulties, God can sustain us. He can protect us through it all and get us to the morning. I also see the importance of rest. It was the sleep and the rest that gave David uh, the confidence. But the crazy part too, it was only through God that David could rest. So when we're going through it and we do rest, that's what's going to build our confidence. And it's only through God that we can rest. So God is sustaining us on both ends. He's sustaining us to rest when we need the rest. And then when we come out of it, he's giving us the confidence to know who he is. And it's amazing what a good night's rest can do to our perspective. Uh, This again, this psalm to me, I see it as being written after the moment, after the night of rest, and and you see where it starts off with God, and it is all about what God can do. David's perspective is changed. It's no longer on the enemies. It's no longer on uh, the the multitude of people surrounding him. In fact, verse 6 leads into he no longer fears the thousands because of his trust in God. It was because of what God has done 
is doing and will do that David no longer fears the enemies around him. God had become bigger than the issue, the problem, and the situation. And I really believe what David is trying to tell us here is don't spend your time on the enemies. Take your eyes off of them. Put them on the God who's going to burn away your fears. I think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? And they're thrown into the fiery furnace. And man, a fiery furnace seems like a scary situation. And they're basically getting thrown in there to be executed. And they're bound. They're tied up. And where they're thrown in, the Bible says that the things that bound them, the ropes that were tying them, that burned away. But their clothes and their flesh did not. And that's what fear does. Fear binds us. It limits us from moving from one way to another. It limits us from trusting God completely. And when it binds us, it makes us stuck. And what God wants to do when we're in the midst of the difficulties, he wants to free us from the fear that's going to bind us and keep us there. He wants to free us from the enemies who are telling us things aren't going to get better. It's only going to get worse. This is what you deserve. And he wants to free us from all of that so that we could walk in freedom with him, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. One other thing I want to bring up real quick is that your enemy, it's not your spouse. It's not your financial situation. It's not your coworker. It's not your family. Your enemy is Satan. It's sin, it's death, and it's temptation. Those are the real enemies in our life. Satan is going to accuse me. My sin is going to separate me. Death is going to defeat me. And temptation is going to drive me away from God. Those are the enemies. But God frees us from all of those. Because when we walk in him, I don't have to believe the accusations. I am forgiven of my sins. Death has been defeated. And I could be a conqueror over the things that are tempting me through the Holy Spirit. Verse 7 says, Rise up, O Lord, deliver me, my God. Yes, you will strike all my enemies on the jaw. You will break the teeth of the wicked. And man, this is as real as it gets here. Uh, This part of the psalm, uh, I, I just love it. It's the real, it's the gritty part of it. David isn't afraid to ask God to strike the jaw or break the teeth of his enemy. And I heard this, and I thought it was pretty cool. Uh, that in praying this, David is getting rid of the urge to want to break the teeth of his enemies himself. And I can relate to this. Uh, I mean, I'm a hot-headed person sometimes, and, and there are things about me that I just get frustrated about, or, or I want to retaliate. And what this verse is kind of showing us is that what David is saying here is that, God, you are the one who retaliates. You are the one who defends me, in a sense. I'm going to leave justice in your hands. I don't need to take justice in my own hands. I don't need to go after people and, and break their jaws and, or their, break their teeth. You know, I, I could leave it to you. And he's ridding himself of that urge to want to because he's laying it at God's feet. He's leaving it there. Like, God, you do it. You're righteous. You're just. I leave justice in your hands. And he's taking it out of his own. Uh, another way to look at it is the breaking of the teeth means to shut their mouths or pull their fangs out to remove the venom of the words. And I think sometimes we need to pray that when people insult us or mock us, that God removes the venom of those words so we can focus back on God, uh, that we get that stuff, that, that venom, that poison that's coming into us from their words out of us, that it's taken out. And praying this, we'll say like, hey, make sure it doesn't hurt, Lord. And, and praying this is saying, God, I, I need that out of me so I can focus in on who you really are and so that I could love them like you called me to. But really what I like about this is that it shows us we can be real. Verse 8, the final verse of this chapter uh, says, From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessings be on your people. 
This psalm is written out of a situation in which all earthly reasons for trust have been dissolved, which leads the psalmist to build his hope on an unearthly foundation, the faithfulness of God. And as the old hymn has it, all other ground is sinking sand. David is putting his trust in who God is. He is saying, you've done it before, you'll do it again. I am leaving this situation in your hands. Because if I put it in something else, that's sinking sand. David is still confident that the God who raised him from his low estate to the royal dignity and brought him from the depths of trouble in times past, he can even now save him and restore him to the throne. And that's Psalms 3. It's a prayer to God in tough times. And maybe this year hasn't been the best for you, and maybe the last few years have sucked. I mean, 2020 was a very difficult time, and the years that followed have not been much better. And, and I remember being in the middle of it, thinking, man, I can't wait till, till the next year. I can't wait till 2021 and we get out of this. But the beauty with God is we never have to wait till the next year or the beginning of a year to start over or to look to Him. We could do that now. Second Corinthians says, In the time of my favor I heard you. In the day of, sal- of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation, meaning that we can run to God now. We don't have to wait for the next year. We don't have to wait for our tough times to end. Get your eyes on Him today. So the encouragement to you all is that you can always run to God in tough times. The encouragement is that maybe your tough times won't change, but your perspective will. The encouragement is that when our perspective is on God, God is all that matters. The encouragement is when God is all that matters, you find deliverance and salvation. Do not wait. Turn your eyes to God today. So I hope you all have a safe and happy new year. Uh, I will catch you on the next episode, Psalms 1, just me again by myself. Go on and read it uh, so you're on the same page with me when I start talking through it. Um, That is it. I am Chris. I am your church friend. Thanks for listening.